Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And this morning we're looking at Malachi chapter 1. We'll start off in verse 6. But we're looking at worship, ironically enough, as the Lord would have it. Worship. And so this whole week I've been looking at worship. And it's been an entire week, and I've had to worship my way through some things. And it hasn't been easy sometimes. The background we talked about a little bit last week is the book of Malachi. It looks like we're the third wheel on an awkward conversation between a father and a son. That's what it looks like. And they have this back and forth all throughout the book of Malachi. Today we're going to see God speaking directly to the Israelite priests. There's a problem that he's addressing. And so if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Worthless worship. Worthless worship. Let's kick off in verse 6 together. It says this. God's speaking. He says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is the fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to the priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Again, this is going towards the priest and the people. See, they were returning from exile about 100 years removed, like we talked about last week. And these priests were responsible for leading God's people to know and to learn God's ways and God's word. Instead, the priest and the people have turned from God's ways, turned to their own ways, out of a place of distrust of God's word. And this is a subtle shift that happens over time, or it can if we don't guard ourselves. And it really comes down to the first temptation that has ever happened in the history of creation. Do you remember Genesis 3? Did God really say? That's where all the subtle shifts come from. A subtle strain from God's word begins with, did God really say? I know we don't deal with that today, right? We don't deal with people questioning God's word, but they did then. We do today. It's something that hasn't changed. Did God really say? And distrusting God's word will always lead to leaning on your own ways. We touched on this a little bit last week, Proverbs 3, 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Why? Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. That means he knows more than you do. He just knows more than us. So do we trust him or not? And the question we're asking throughout the series is really a self-evaluating question. Have you turned from God's ways? Have we turned to our own ways? And this is what we're going to see again in the people and the priests here. They've turned to their own ways, even though they know God's word. And God points out the priest's heart posture problem here. He starts with paraphrasing. In other words, he says, not only do you not honor me, you have no reverence for me, but your actions and attitude demonstrate you actually despise me. Now, many of you know I did 15 years either working in or for the military. And people in certain positions, rank, were due certain levels of honor, or maybe say reverence, really. And so a certain rank, you start saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. A certain higher rank, you start saluting. There's a certain rank, if they visited your facility 
and you'd be cleaning, right? You'd be washing trucks, waxing floors, where you could actually eat off the floors if they were to come. Like, if the general were to visit, it'd be insane what we'd be doing to prepare for this general to visit. I mean, you'd be cleaning toilets like you've never seen toilets cleaned before. It's insane what you would do. And so I'm thinking about this, and how much more, if we would do this for a general that would visit, what would we do for God? How do we act towards God? How do we treat God? Do we treat him with the same amount of honor or reverence that comes from a lifestyle? Here, the priest asks, well, how have we despised you? In verse 7, God answers. He says, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present blind animals for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be generous to us? Since this has come from your hands, will, you sh- will you- he show us any favor? Asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the doors of the temple so that you would no longer kindle useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, said the Lord of armies. I will not accept offering from your hands. What we see here is this offering of a sacrifice is an act of obedience and worship. That started in, again, the first sin in the garden in Genesis 3. You see, the first man and woman, they sinned. They rebelled against God, chose their ways over his, out of distrust in his word. Did God really say? They said, you know what? I think he's lying to us. We'll do what we want. And so they did what they want. Sin entered in the world, separated the relationship between they had them with God. Seeing their shame from their sin, they tried to cover themselves with some leaves. But God said that wouldn't do. And so what God would cover their sin and their shame with the first sacrifice, blood sacrifice, skin garments that he would cover their shame and sin with. So that's where the sacrificial system is set in place. And it's carried on throughout the Old Testament era. That's out of a heart of worship. And they do this by faith in the forgiveness of sin. And there are a few things that we need to know. Number one, the animal that would be offered was to be without defect, without spot, without blemish. It was supposed to be perfect. This comes out of Leviticus 22. It says you must offer an unblemished male male from the cattle, sheep, or goats, in order for you to be accepted. You are not to present anything that has defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. So there's a standard on what they are to sacrifice. Perfection, their best. They're to give their best. Number two, these sacrifice, the person who's offering this sacrifice had to see their sin in this sacrifice. In other words, this payment was being made on their behalf, the payment of sin. And thirdly, this was a temporary covering of sin that was applied by faith. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so during this Old Testament era of sacrifices, it's important for us to know, they were both looking back and looking forward. Looking back at the first sin that was committed and their own sin. This is why they sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. But also looking forward to the one day that God would send the Christ, the Messiah, to make the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Which leads to the question, why do we no longer offer animal sacrifices? Many of you know, maybe you have that question. Simply, it's Jesus. 
Jesus is why we don't do that anymore. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says about Jesus that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, perfect when we were imperfect on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7 talks about comparisons the high priest to Jesus, the ultimate high priest. In verse 27, it says, He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as a high priest do. For in their own sins, then those for the people, he did this once for all time when he offered himself. He was a fulfillment of the sacrificial system. It was no longer needed because it was always pointing towards him. Which brings significance when John the baptizer sees Jesus off in distance in John 1. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so just as these Israelites here in Malachi 1 were supposed to be offering these sacrifices, looking back again at their first sin and their own sin and the severity of sin, looking forward to the promise of God that one day the Christ will come and pay the price for all sin, we do this still today, just not with a sacrificial system. We do this with communion. You guys realize that? This is what communion is. God commanded for us to have this thing we call communion, the Lord's Supper. And what we do, we look back and see the severity of our sin and the goodness of God and his grace passing over sin by the sacrifice of Jesus applied by faith. We also look forward to the coming of Christ as promised that one day he will return and make all things fully and finally new. And we do this as a church here locally every single week. 2 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So worship, both then and now, is both a reminder and a response. The reminder is that there is a holy, righteous, and just God who has extended grace, mercy, and forgiveness to a rebellious people. Isaiah 53 says that we've all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. Romans 3.23 said we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But yet God is righteous, just, but has extended his grace in a way to have a right relationship with him. So it's a reminder and a response, a response to God's gracious act of making a way to have our relationship restored. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. And Galatians 3.26 says, for through faith you are all sons of God through Christ Jesus. So we worship because of what he has done, is doing, and because who he is. But what we see here is not all worship is pleasing to God. Have you even thought about that? How we worship matters? And I'm not talking about should we have drums, Right? I'm not talking about should we just have a piano. I'm not talking about lights or smoke machines. That's not what we're talking about. A worship that aligns with God's word. Is our worship pleasing to him? And what I was pointing to first when we came together this morning is our heart posture matters. Man, we can do a lot of things for God. I'm getting ahead of myself. We can do a lot of things for God, but if our heart posture isn't right, it's worthless, including our worship. And sometimes we just got to worship our way through some junk. Like many of you this morning, I know many of us are going through some things. But you have to choose to worship your way through it because God remains worthy despite your circumstances. The priests ask here, how have we defiled you? Or didn't we, we do what you told us? Like we're doing this thing. Why are you mad at us? 
Obviously, they're familiar with Leviticus 22, which we read earlier. But from drifting from God's word, they start rationalizing their rebellion. And I think we all know this. But do we understand that partial obedience is full disobedience? You ever thought about that? Like partial obedience is full disobedience. Anyone who ever works for someone and they give you a task within a time frame, but you do part of it, is your boss or supervisor going to be pleased? No. Anyone that's ever been a student, if your teacher tells you to do this by a certain point and you do half your homework or half your test, are you going to pass? Is it going to be successful? No, absolutely not. Anyone who has kids, if I tell my kids to clean their room and they clean half of it, am I going to be pleased? No. No. But, Dad, we cleaned, kind of. It's still full disobedience. That's what's happening here. They were doing the the sacrifices or sacrificing animals, but they weren't doing it that aligned with God's word. Malachi 1.8 says they were blind, lame, and sick animals. Verse 13 says they were stolen. Verse 14, defective. So in other words, God here is saying, keep your lame offerings because your worship is worthless. He actually says, it'll be better for you to shut the doors than continue to do what you're doing. To us, it'd be like, it'd be better for you to shut down the church than continue to worship the way you're worshiping. I wonder how many are offering lame, worthless worship this morning. I mean, some of us were like, I went to church, didn't I? Like, I did the thing. How many of us are just doing the thing? It's interesting. There's this account in 1 Samuel 15. King Saul did this religious activity, but he did it in a way that God didn't prescribe for him to do it. So God was displeased. And Saul's like, I did the thing. He sends the prophet Samuel to Saul. And Samuel says this. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? He says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. God calls us to obedience. That aligns with God's word. But he also keeps connecting it to the heart posture. I don't think we can fully be obedient to the Lord unless we love the Lord. If we love ourselves more than we love the Lord, it reflects in how we live. And that's what we see here. You know, James, in the book of James, he talks about faith without works is worthless. But throughout Scripture, God says works without faith is also worthless. Why? Because all of it revolves around who God is. And our response to him flows from him, our love for him, our faith in him. And this is what Jesus warns. Many of us, when we all someday will stand before the judgment seat of God, all of us, everyone. And many of you people are like, look at all these things that we did for you. Man, how blessed are you, God, to have me on your side, right? Pretty awesome people. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, right, that's all danger starts, didn't we do these things? Didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Man, you can do so many things for God and completely miss God. And this isn't a way to scare you. This is a way to remind you that it's your faith that saves you, not the things you do. It's your faith in the Lord. It's called imputed righteousness. 
He made you righteous because of his righteousness applied through faith and not for what we do. I love the example God gives here. He asks, would your governor be ex- excited, would be pleased, accepted these half-hearted offerings? He says, how much more would I not be pleased with you? And though these people have turned from God's word and his ways to their own, God reminds them that his faithfulness is not dependent on their faithlessness, and his fame will continue to spread to all peoples. Look at verse 11. He says, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented to my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of Army. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and his and its product, its food, is contemptible. You'll also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord? You deceiver, the deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock, and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. This passage is looking to the fulfillment of the Great Commission one day. And this is important because we quote the Great Commission every single time we gather as we leave. Jesus said all that would follow him, go and make disciples of all nations. That is groups of people. Or people groups. The Great Commission primarily exists because God is worthy of all worship from all people. And right now, that's just not the truth that's happening. There's not all people worshiping the one God who's worthy of all their worship. That is why the Great Commission exists. It's for God's glory. For him to be known, his fame to spread, because he is worthy. But we also know when you come to know God, there's nothing greater. For those who have come to Jesus by faith, there's nothing greater than to have your identity changed and rooted in your Savior. What we see here is God's presence is planned to spread through his people. His glory demonstrated through the people's activity and his love demonstrated through the people's life. And yet here, the people were not glorifying the Lord in what, how they were treating him and how they were living for him. And it really comes down to, in my opinion, passive leadership. You can't be passive. You can't be passive in your faith walk. Like, we don't naturally drift towards growing in our walk with Christ. You cannot be passive. You cannot be passive in your leadership. I mean, I'm convinced that's why the spiritual decline is where it is right now is because men have been passive and leading their families well. You can't have passive pastor, pastors. You can't have passive priests. And what happens is that these priests were drifting from God's word that led to their people drifting from God's word. And what happens next? You start rationalizing your rebellion and start worshiping any way you want. And God says that worship is worthless. And what we need to know is when you have no reverence for the Lord, the response every time is to do what's right in your own eyes. When reverence is God gone, what's it matter? Proverbs 12, 15 says a fool's way is right in his own eyes. And it's so easy to rationalize our rebellion. Let's just be honest, to shrink the size of our sin. It comes from we measure what is right by the world's ways instead of measuring what's right by God's ways. Our rebellion comes from a loss of reverence. Our living in sin really comes from a lack of love for God. I'm just convinced, biblically, personally. 
It's a reminder of all the commands in Scripture. Because I've heard this, especially from new believers, like, I want to know what sin is and where I'm supposed to obey and all these things in Scripture. If there was one command to keep of all time that God gave, the most important command, what would it be? Anybody know? Yeah, Jesus says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Number one, because everything flows from that. The first and most important command is do this. The first important command isn't go make disciples. The first and most important command is not go share the gospel. It's to love the Lord because I'm convinced you cannot do these things in a way that pleases God without your love for the Lord. Everything flows from that. You want to clean your life up, love the Lord. You want to stop doing these things, love the Lord. You want to start treating other people better, love the Lord. It has to start with your love for the Lord and let him do that work in you. Like we talk about this all the time. So many times I hear, let me clean myself up first before I come and put my faith in God. I got news for you. You cannot clean yourself up enough. Or else Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was worthless. If there's any other way to have that relationship restored and your sins forgiven, his death was worthless. But what we see is a standard of love in God. Love leads to action. That's what we see. God loved first. He gave first and set the standard of what love looks like for us to follow. This is John 3 when, God, when Jesus says, For God loved the world in this way, he gave. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the cultural significance here is the firstborn son would carry on the lineage, the family right of the father. Right? has all the privileges, authority of the father. But now the only firstborn son, how much more significant would this son be? As Jesus says, this is how much God loves you, that he sacrificed his only son so that you could have life. God's love is demonstrated through action. Romans 5.8 says, God proves his own love for us in that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Proves it. So what we see, love gives sacrificially and loves unconditionally. Gives sacrificially and continues unconditionally. And what we see here, their actions were showing their lack of love to the Lord. Your love is shown by how you live. Who you love, what you love, it's shown by how you live. I'm just an example, husbands. How do you, how does your wife know you love her? Like, you can say it all you want. I, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if you're not showing it, your wife's going to say it's worthless. I mean, you leaving your underwear all over the house is not showing your love for your wife, right? You constantly not picking up after yourselves. Listen, you could say, you know, I go to work, I provide. That's how I love you. That's not enough. Do you love sacrificially? Like, how do you know someone loves you? Is it just lip service? Because it has to be both, right? It's what you say and what you show. You show with your hands what's in your heart. And ultimately, lip service is worthless. And we know that relationally with each other. How much more does God know that? And we need to know that with our relationship with the Lord. Jesus continued to get on the religious leaders of the day, right? In Matthew 15, he calls them hypocrites. 
these Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he says this, they worship me in vain. Because their heart wasn't right. And these religious leaders did all the right things, right? I mean, that was their job, to keep every point of the law, which is what they thought at least. He says they're hypocrites because their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Useless, worthless worship. And again, here, God points to the heart posture problem. Look at Malachi 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know I sent this decree, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave him these to him. It called for reverence. He revered me and stood in awe of my name. True, true instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity, turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is a messenger of the Lord. A lot said here, real quick. The priests is who God called from the family of Levi. These, here, he gives qualifications. They were called to be spiritual leaders. They were called to a reverence for the Lord, to provide guidance for God's people that align with God's word, to be known as peacemakers, known for their integrity, and called to turn people from their sin to their Savior God. But what he's saying here in Malachi is these religious leaders did none of that, completely on the other side of what they were called to do. The people they're called to be. Look at verse 8. He says, you, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, turn, so I in turn, have despised you and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways and by showing partiality in your instructions. In other words, you will be despised in the same way you have despised me. In other words, your worthless Worship is wasted like that of animal waste that will spread on your face. I mean, that, that's some graphic stuff. I want you to see how serious God is about his worship. He says, your religious acts are repulsive. And the Bible regularly talks about how right worship rises like a pleasing aroma before God. I imagine it like Bacon. Right? You're walking the house, bacon cooking. Is there any more, anything more special than bacon? The answer is no. And if you disagree, you can be wrong. But how much more pleasing is the worship and prayers of the saints that arise to God? How much more pleasing is that to him? Here, he says, wrong worship that arises smells more like animal surprises. That's what he says, right? Let's be... It's worthless, it's disgusting, it's repulsive. And God uses graphic illustrations to portray the sickness of our sinfulness in his sight all throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, All of us have become like something like unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like polluted garments. And I think the Bible interpreters try to guard a little bit of what they're saying about polluted garments. 
Interesting conversation, side note, but it relates, I promise. Uh, my wife and my adult daughter were having just a conversation about her classes that she's taking in nursing program and started talking about just the menstrual cycles. And one of my sons will be, remain unnamed, started asking questions. Like, be careful what you ask, right? Anybody ever been there? Like, oh, I wish I wouldn't ask that. So he asked, what, is, what does that mean? My wife's like, well, here we go. And you can tell as she started explaining it, the look on his face changed like, oh, my goodness, I regret this immediately. But he's too far in, so he just kind of stood there and took it, right? This is what God's pointing to here. Polluted garments, it's menstrual rags. That's what our works are when we're trying to earn our righteousness. They're like a polluted garment, menstrual rags in his sight. Disgusting, repulsive, like animal waste, useless. This is the doing equals deserving mentality. I do all these things, right? Look how many things I did for you, God. And yet, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not that we don't do things for God. It's the why and the how we do things for God. As I was thinking about this in our own life, it's clear that you prioritize what you prize in our lives. We prioritize the things we prize. And these people were saving the best for themselves and giving God their lame leftovers. It reminds me of my kids, and I've been guilty of doing it. Every time they have to share something, like split a sandwich, split an ice cream, something in half, the first thing they do, and I've been guilty, which one's bigger, right? Which one's bigger? I'll, I'll take that one. That's what they were doing. Let me keep the best for me, and I'll give God these lame leftovers. And I just wonder how many of us are offering worthless worship because we're offering lame leftovers to the Lord. We prioritize right worship because we prioritize a right relationship with God. I mean, there's several things that we do as Christians and as we do as a church because God commands us to, but it matters why and how we do them and our heart posture behind them. Like we gather, we prioritize weekly worship gatherings. Why? Why would you be here this morning? Because God calls us to be here this morning. God calls us to do this thing called gathering as the church for corporate worship. That's what you see throughout the New Testament. The church gathered. Jesus built it, the church gathered weekly and throughout the week. Like they met together. And it's just crazy, I'm going to go out and say something really wild. I believe if live streaming was still available 2,000 years ago, you know what the church would still do? Gather. Because there's only certain things you can do gathered that God commands us to do as a church. Hebrews 10, 25 says that we're not to neglect the gathering together, as some in our habit of doing. So we prioritize gathering, we prioritize reading the Bible. Psalm 119.11 says, I have treasured your word up in my heart so that I will not sin against you. We prioritize praying. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray constantly. We even prioritize singing. Anyone like me that just can't sing worth a lick? Anybody? I can't sing at all. I desire to. I would love to sing. Can't do it. But it's funny that God doesn't say, you know, if you can't sing very good, just don't. I'd rather you didn't. Right? You don't say that. Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2 says, Let the whole earth shout. And that's what my singing sounds like. Shouting, triumphing to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. I'm joyful. You may not be very joyful after you hear me sing, but I'm joyful. 
But more so than anything, these things, there's a heart posture behind them. Why do we do what we do? And there's this verse out of Romans 12 that really just opens this worship into a very broad category. It calls us to a lifestyle lived out of a heart of worship. Romans 12.1 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And what's interesting about that is that sacrifices don't live. They're sacrificed. Dead, if you're not following that, right? They're, they're no longer living. But here, God calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our worship, is to be pleasing to God. So how are we offering our bodies as a living sacrifice? I'm going to give you three categories, and we're going to close. Because I believe we should be doers of the word, not hearers only. Right? Sounds biblical, because it is. So what do we do with this? Well, I'll give you three. Giving in, number one. Giving up, number two. And giving to, number three. How do we apply this? Giving in, giving up, giving to. This is what I mean. How do we offer ourselves a living sacrifice? It takes giving in. Turning from your faith in yourself to your faith in your Savior. This is where it starts. Have you really transitioned from trusting in yourselves to trusting in God? And the good test of that is take the thing that you valued most it could be family, it could be things, and would you be willing to give it up for the Lord? If that's a no, I would say your faith is still in yourself. Now, is that hard? Yes. I'm not saying it's easy. But how much do you trust the Lord is what I'm asking you. Is he worth everything? Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Living sacrifice. So it takes us giving in to trust in him over ourselves. It takes us to give up. So giving in, number two, giving up. That is turning from things that are just damaging your life. It could be turning from your sin that you know you've been living in to your Savior. Turning those things over that God's revealing to you that you know are not helpful, that are hurting that don't come from a place of devotion to the Lord, but actually damaging to your soul. What is God calling you to give up for the sake of his glory and for your good? I mean, God's not that anti-fun police, right? I think we come to like, God, if I come to Jesus, I can never do anything fun anymore. I hope not. Like, God is a creator of fun. Do you guys know this? He created us to enjoy things. It's when we start idolizing those things that we enjoy becomes a problem. But what are some things in your life that are just causing you to stumble, to trip? Maybe God's calling you to give up some things in order to start growing in your relationship with him. So called to give in, give up, and finally give to. And here we see it, the problem is that they were giving to God, but they're giving their leftovers, their lame offerings, their things that they didn't want in the first place, which God says is lame, is worthless. So maybe for us, we, we got to turn from a heart of gaining to a heart of giving. This is God's heart posture, is giving. God gives his first and his best. And as God's people, we're called to give our best for the glory of God. And so maybe for you, 
Maybe you've been reluctantly holding back and not giving to what God's called you to do. I'm not only talking about finances, because I know when I say giving, you hear money. I knew he's coming out from our wallet today. I knew it. That's why I don't go to church, because all they talk about is money. This is talking about your life. This is talking about your time, your talents, your treasures. It all belongs to the Lord when you come to the Lord by faith. If you're holding anything back, maybe you don't trust the Lord in the way you think you do. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship. So I'm going to invite our band back up here. We'll do an aspect of worship. Sing. But you know what also is worship? This is why we call it a worship gathering. Reading God's word. Listening to God's word. Praying. These things are all aspects of God, of worship. Communion. Worship. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to close this in prayer. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm also going to invite you to respond to what God's doing. Is God revealing something in your life that's caused a barrier between you and him? I'm going to ask you in what ways you've turned from the Lord. Because at, at some point in our lives, we start drifting. That's turning. Drifting towards what we want, our own ways, and drifting from him and his ways. Where have you drifted? Where have you turned? I'm asking God to continue to reveal that to us because it's ultimately for our own good because God's designed you, he's wired you, he's created you perfect in his image and so he knows what's best for us. Do we trust him in that way? For some of us, first step is finally to give in. You've been reluctant to really put your faith in the Lord for whatever reason that you've created, that he's worthy. Some of us, it's time to give up. Some of those habits that you've been entrenched in, that's damaging, that's destructive. It's hurting you, it's hurting those around you. It's time for you to give up. But that only comes from giving in because it's the power of God that will create that strength in you to do those things that he's calling you to do. Maybe for some of you, it's to give too. You know, it's interesting. When you start losing the closeness with God, we grow more closed-fisted with our stuff. Time. Talents, treasures. God's called us to be generous because God is a generous God. As a church, we're striving for generosity. And as his people, we're striving for generosity. But God has to create that in our hearts. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask God just to burden our hearts to what he's called us to do. And then we're going to sing. And for some of you, the response of worship that you'll have is singing praises to God because he's worthy. For some of you, you may just need to sit there and pray and deal with what God's putting on your heart because that response of worship for God is worthy. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. Maybe you need to gather with someone around you. We'll have a prayer team to the side. We'd love to pray with you, walk alongside you, help you in your next steps in this faith journey that you have with Jesus. Respond to what God's doing. Feel the refreshing and the hope that comes from God. Let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you just for the amazing love that you have shown us, extended to us. Even when we fall short, when we miss the mark, when we drift, when we stray, when we go our own ways, you are faithful to pursue us and draw us back. So right now, I pray that you refresh our hearts that you bring encouragement through your word, knowing that you are a God who's faithful, even when we're faithless. 
And when you show us these areas to where we've strayed, it's your grace to bring us back. As a father does corrective action for his child, how much more do you do for us because of your love for us? So, Father, we ask that you lead us in this time of reflection to see what you're working in our hearts. Lord, forgive us in ways that we've come short, that we've strayed, that we've chosen our ways, that we've resisted a heart of worship, that we resisted a lifestyle of worship that you called us to, that we resisted fully following you. Lord, bring us back to yourself. Refresh us with your presence. I just pray that the Holy Spirit move in this place. Fill this place with your presence. Lead us in this heart of response of worship to what you're leading us to do as a collective church and individual Christians. Father, lead us in this heart of worship. Let us leave this place with a heart of worship. Let us, this be a marker in our life and a moment shift to live our lives in a way that worships you. Everything that we do, everything that we're involved in, let us live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. And show us areas that are not pleasing, that are destructive, Father, and give us the distaste and a hatred for those things. Give us a desire to be fully devoted to you because you are worthy and remind us of your faithfulness, your amazing love, and that you're always with us and you will never, ever forsake us. So lead us in this time of response of worship because you are worthy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.